I'm Dick Moberg, and for more than 40 years, I've been developing technology to advance our understanding of the injured brain. I've had a chance to work with some of the leading minds in the field of neuromonitoring, including physicians, researchers, and entrepreneurs. I want to share their stories with you in the form of a weekly podcast so you can stay current on the latest developments in the field and the innovative people behind them. This is my neural network. Hi, I'm Dick Moberg, and we're at Chilling at the Beach, the 10th annual meeting on therapeutic hypothermia here in Miami. And our topic today is on ice caps, a new clinical trial focused on therapeutic hypothermia in patients following cardiac arrest. And my two guests today are longtime friends of mine. We have Rob Silbergleit here, who's professor of emergency medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. And I also have a good friend, Romer Geocaden, professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins. So welcome, Romer. Hi, Dick. Thank you for having us. So we just heard a great talk on uh, IceCap. What I want to do is tell our listeners uh, about that trial. It's an exciting trial. And I want to start with you, Rob. I want to talk about SIREN, which is conducting the, conducting the trial, and about how that started. I know we're involved in Boost 3, which you're running, and it seems to be a nice mechanism for running these trials. So give us a little history of that and what SIREN does. Yeah, sure. So SIREN is a NIH-funded uh, clinical trials infrastructure that works in the emergency and the acute care space, including acute uh, phases of critical care. And... What we do is multiple simultaneous trials in various different uh, disease states. And it really makes for an efficient way of doing things. We, we evolved out of the Neurologic Emergency Treatment Trials Network, which was our first 10 years of funding. And we were funded then by the NINDS. And then when it came time to re-up, it actually ended up being a collaborative effort between NINDS and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, NHLBI. And so now we're co-funded by both those institutes. So we get the opportunity to use the same core of sort of uh, street-tested, battle-tested study coordinators at sites to work in multiple different simultaneous trials at the same time and get a lot of efficiencies of scale and a lot of uh, capitalizing on people's experience. That's cool. And, and you, you're sort of moving from uh, emergency to neuro, right? We're getting into that quite a bit with this, I mean, especially well, with we, we used one. to be just neuro. Right, oh yeah, and, oh, neuro, of course. Yeah. And, and, and with Siren, with our, our partners, we're actually looking at different disease states that include the heart. What's really exciting about IceCap is that, you know, what we've been saying for the 10 years that we've been pitching this trial is that cardiac arrest is really both a cardiac emergency and a neurologic emergency. Right. And I actually remember being at the uh, Resuscitation Science Symposium about 10 years ago, and putting up signs all over the place that said that just to challenge people's uh, notions. Yeah. And I remember when uh, Stefan Mayer got, um, didn't he get New York City to take their cardiac arrest patients to a place that had a neuro ICU? Wasn't there something a while back with that? I mean, in New York, I, that's where I sort of, that's what clued me into that it's really a neuro thing. I don't know if you remember that, but. I think he did it in his center, Columbia, too, was it, where he was taking cardiac arrest patients. Into, uh, when they came to Columbia, because, they became yeah, neuro patients. Because the, right. the biggest problem of post-cardiac arrest patients after they're resuscitated, they may have problems with their heart, but almost uniformly, all of them will have problems with arousal yeah. and consciousness. Right. Some varying degrees of unresponsiveness. Yeah which is yeah. the biggest marker for brain injury in this patient population. Sure. So why don't you start, Romer, and, and tell us about the trial. Right. So the trial really is 
cardiac arrest and resuscitation. And when we resuscitate people, the biggest problem that they have is related to brain injury, which in this case is manifested predominantly by unresponsiveness or coma. And in many of these patients that we see in the ICU, their heart, their lung, their kidneys recover, but a big portion of them, about half of the survivors, will still have some difficult level of recovering consciousness. And, but the problem really is that cardiac arrest itself so when you, when you resuscitate somebody from cardiac arrest, only 20% of them will ever survive and have a, an outcome. But the problem is of that 20%, less than 10% will have a decent outcome. And so that is a big chunk of patient considering that we're talking about like 250 to as much as half a million cardiac arrest out of hospital a year in the United States. So when you look at those numbers, it's staggering. And you know we really don't have effective treatments until therapeutic hypothermia came along. For for the focus here is really brain injury, and try to improve that deficit that they have. I know the numbers for traumatic brain injury. I think the the cost of traumatic brain injury per year, I think I've heard, is something like seventy six billion dollars a year for TBI, and that's including the round-the-clock care that a lot of these um, uh, the survivors need. And I would imagine the same uh, kinds of costs uh, are the same for um, cardiac arrest patients that end up with brain injuries. I, I don't know the specific number, Robert. Do you know? It, it's actually a little less bad from a financial standpoint because there's a much more bimodal distribution of how people do. Got it. And Got it. so in cardiac arrest, there are a lot of people who don't survive at all because of their neurologic uh, injury. It's the leading cause of death if you get your heart restarted. So the right. biggest problem you have when you have a cardiac arrest is that your heart isn't going. Right. Your biggest problem once your heart gets restarted is that your brain suffered a period without oxygen and is damaged and you need to recover from that. So most people who have a cardiac arrest die because their heart never gets restarted. Most people who survive their cardiac arrest die because of brain injury. Brain injuries. And, and, but there's still a group, I'm sure, that, could, that need uh, significant care afterwards. Sure. And, and that's really, I think we can, we can make some, uh, uh, yeah, some progress. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. And, right. and, and there's, we, yeah. what we want is, is have more people who have a neurologic recovery. And we also want a better neurologic recovery among the people who do recover. Because even people who come back who have a good recovery yeah. often report that there are deficits and things that they can't do afterwards that are subtle that we think right. we could do better on too. Right. Right, right. But I think there is a very big, important statement that needs to be made here. That brain, that survivors of cardiac, there used to be a time when nihilism was so large that after you've been resuscitated, people say, why bother? And many of these patients are practically, you know, they stop care very early on. But right now what we're seeing is that when we provide good care and in this setting, therapeutic hypothermia, you actually improve the outcomes. And there are survivors with decent quality of life. And some even recovered to almost the point of where they were before they arrested. And this was unheard of uh, a decade ago. So when therapeutic hypothermia came on the horizon, it actually changed. But the problem is the, uh, the, the, the people's acceptance that the nihilism should be taken away yeah. is still hard. 
that there are still a lot of people holding out like there's no hope. What, why are we doing this? Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest thing, at least for the trial, that we need to change. Yeah, yeah. And we saw some cases at the meeting today right. of uh, survivors that actually did quite well. So, right. so uh, there's certainly hope. So do you want to tell us a little more about the trial and um, you know how you how you um, got it funded? I, I heard today it's quite a long history. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so it took us about nine years. Mm-hmm to get this and multiple iterations because uh, th- th- there's a lot of moving parts here. Number one is we need, th- there's act- the devices that are used, they don't have actually proper FDA indication. So we have to work with the FDA in a way that they will agree with the trial, that the devices will get there, and then we have to get the science properly. And so one of the things, and I, I think Dr. Silberg can talk a little bit about the adaptive trial design was, how do we do a trial that is effective and at the same time innovative that also answers the question and delivers the results that will improve the care that we provide? And so it took, plus the reason why it took a long time was also because we needed to approach NANDS and NHLBI. Mm-hmm. And through this course, also there's, there's the evolution of NET that Dr. Silberglight was talking to become SIREN. And so there's, there's a lot of things that we're moving about, but through all of this, much of our careers, mine, for example, I was not directly in SIREN, but I was working with American Heart Association and American Academy of Neurology, focusing on brain injury upper cardiac arrest. And then what do we need to do from those periphery to actually, no, no, actually from those organizations to have an impact. And so this sort of like gel together. And so when we started talking more about how do we put siren together? And so that is, so it came about and it took about 10 years when we finally got the grant and we were granted the permission to submit. Do you want to add anything else, Robert? I'm sorry, let me just interrupt for a minute. We tried to find a nice quiet room to record this podcast. looks like there's a little bit of noise going on right now. Hopefully that'll be cleared up in the next minute or two. So uh, please go ahead. Yeah, so the history of the particular problem was that hypothermia had been an interesting intervention for years, but then uh, in, the, in the early 2000s, we had two clinical trials that suggested that this should now be clinical practice. Those clinical trials were done with a bunch of methodological limitations that made some people in the community and certainly the FDA question the validity of those results. And so those trials were never, uh, never had an opportunity to let any of the companies gain an indication. They did, however, make the community unwilling to do further placebo-controlled trials. And uh, so we ended up with a quandary for years where uh, the community, to a certain degree, and FDA to a larger degree, wanted to know whether hypothermia worked. And the community was left with the question, how do we make hypothermia work better? And so we wanted to do a trial that answered both those questions. And we, one of the reasons that it took a long time to develop was that we wanted a really smart, innovative trial that could answer both of those questions. And so we got a grant from NIH and FDA co-sponsored to develop an adaptive clinical trial in partnership with FDA at the table that would answer these questions to FDA's satisfaction. Oh, that's great. I'm going to come back to that adaptive design in a minute because I think that's very, uh, it's very innovative uh, for this trial. Let me go back to you and just uh, how are you structuring the trial? So uh, there are two. So the, the depth of cooling right now, there's two general practice. One is to cool the patient to 33 degrees and the other is to cool the patient to 36 degrees. 
but what we have adapted based on laboratory studies and based on trials and based on when we queried the centers that joined us that they're more interested in doing 33 degrees and from my experience i'm a translational scientist from the lab so i i'm actually i believe that 33 is the more definitive intervention degrees now the question now is duration because if we are set with 33 degrees, how do we vary this to get a dose response curve? And so that's when we came up with this different dose. So we're starting. So there's two trials that actually compared uh, 12, 24, and then there's a trial that was short of being positive, which is 48. So we'll be starting with that. And depending on the design, and uh, Dr. Silberglite will talk a little bit about it. So, so we will keep adding. So it's really a duration duration of intervention trial. And, and that's really what the trial's about. It's exactly. the duration or the dose of cooling, right? right? And, good. And, and it's also interesting because the centers, at least the centers that we queried, were not interested in doing a placebo trial anymore, that they want to cool, which is like what we're saying, how do we do this better? And right. to do it better, we have to vary the duration. And... Uh, how many sites? I saw a slide. You have a lot of sites signed up now. That's pretty so impressive. We, so we have about 62 sites and growing. So mm -hmm. we're still, you know, welcoming sites to come and join. So we're targeting 1,800 patients for the trial. And about how many years will this be going on? Uh, four and a half. Four and a half years. Okay. So tell us about uh, this adaptive design. It's pretty, yeah. pretty cool. So, so, but I'm pumped, right? That's a pun. Um, okay, so, so I mean, the, 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 the issue that we were facing was that we wanted uh, a trial that could answer this question as to whether hypothermia worked at all and whether there was an optimal duration because duration was this element of dose that really hadn't been explored. It's a more interesting element of dose because it can get shorter or longer in a way that depth really can't uh, offer. So what we decided was that what we needed a trial that is... is what we needed was a trial that would let us define a duration response curve. And finding the duration response curve lets us answer both questions, because if there's an upward dose response curve, then that implies, and FDA was satisfied with the implication, that implies efficacy. So the first, the first question was, can we show an upward dose response curve, duration response curve, that shows that hypothermia works at all? And then the second thing was that once we see that it's upward, we can try to define how long do we need to go. At some point, that upward curve is going to plateau, and that plateau should be the right duration uh, for us to cool. Because we do know that eventually some length of duration is going to prolong ICU stay, and that's dangerous in and of itself. So the uh, adaptive trial designs let you have a program that evaluates the data that's accumulating in the trial and make changes to where you put future subjects based on what's accumulated in the trial so far. And that lets you really use patients wisely and learn things from every patient. So you're not putting a bunch of patients on an uninteresting part of the duration response curve. So what this trial does is start with a run-in period where we take 200 patients, and the first 200 patients are randomized evenly to 12 hours, 24 hours, or 48 hours. And then what the algorithm does at the end of that 200 is look at how people have been distributed and see if there's any hint that there's an upward curve. And if there's any hint that there's an upward curve and longer duration looks like it might be doing better, it opens up in the next 50 subjects, additional arms of longer durations. And then every 50 subjects, it looks again. 
if at any point the curve is looking flat, completely flat, no effect, then it starts going shorter and opens up intervening and shorter durations down to six hours of duration to see if we're already on that plateau and a shorter duration would start to drop off in efficacy. Because a flat curve has two interpretations. Either you're already on the plateau and you're already got enough, you've already found your optimal duration, or it ain't doing nothing and it doesn't work at all. And there always had to be the possibility for FDA that this study would find that it doesn't do anything. Otherwise, it's not interesting and it doesn't help them. How do you maintain the power of the study if you're changing things as you go along? I know so, it's all in the statistics probably, but... Well, so, so the statistics of adaptive trial designs do get hard, unlike uh, frequentist designs where you can sort of calculate the power a priori. In a adaptive design, it gets too complicated too quickly, and really the only way to get it the power or other operating characteristics. And we, we try not to talk about power, we try to talk about type one error rates and type two error rates, which would be the equivalent in, in a frequentist design. But we do it by doing simulations. And so what we do is we think about all the different types of truths that might be out there. And uh, we create scenarios around them. So we create, in this case, 47 different scenarios about what might actually happen with uh, duration. And then we see how the trial would respond to any of those truths through simulation. And then we simulate each of those scenarios 5,000 times and we plot it all out and we say, you know, for this scenario, what would the power curve be? So what would, what, you know, what would the sample, if a sample size of 1,800 would give us what probability of control of type 1 error and what probability of getting the right answer? And then we can plot that out and that's where we came up with 1,800 as being sort of a, a sweet spot on that curve. Uh, there's still some scenarios that are hard to find and some scenarios that are easier to find. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a real trial and error and it's a lot of simulation results that you need to sort of uh, view to try to understand how you're going to control type 1 error. But, but that's how we, we do it. And we make sure the type 1 error is controlled and we make sure type 2 error is controlled using null scenarios. Uh, that's great. We'll, we'll see how it works out. We will. <laughs> so, so I would imagine the outcome of this is um, when it's all done, you can say, uh, cool your patients to, you know, 48 hours. That's what we found is optimum, right? So you'll be doing that. So, so what role does um, the individuality of the patient um, figure into that? And I know that's um, in, in TBI, that's been one of the big things that's, uh, you know, they're so variable that it's just even hard to do a trial, right? Um, what what is uh, and, and I'm not an expert on cardiac arrest, but is is the injury so homogeneous that you don't have that problem, or you cool them to 48? Is are there other factors in there that are going to change anything? One of the biggest problems that we have in cardiac arrest is the major marker that we have here is the entry criteria is coma, and so they all look alike. But when you really understand their brain, you know a GCS three patients with GCS of eight have totally different brain injury when you look at it. And when you look at the pathophysiology, the selective vulnerability, and what these patients will look like three months down the road, it will be radically different. So that's actually part of the biggest problem that we have right now is because we do not have early and real-time biomarker to pick out the, you know, what's really happening in the brain. And so this is the reason why right now we're trying to find this best dose, but the entry criteria for this is really just if you're not able to follow commands and you're intubating, which means you're in a coma. So, so that's the general phenotype, but knowing that 
fully well that the brain is injured in so many which ways that we still do not understand right now because we don't have the markers. Right. Now, I, I, that brings us to some of the ancillary projects that are being uh, done in conjunction with this trial. Can you tell us about some of those? I mean, I think that's going to tease out some of these uh, variables. Right. So one of the ancillaries that has just been submitted is actually asking the question is, can we have measures that will be able to detect signals that the brain is responding? And if the brain is responding, this will be early markers that we could use later on. So what we're doing is MRI and EEG and other types of biomarkers that we will test, serum biomarkers. So what we will do is we will try to identify if these things are actually telling us that this longer duration of cooling seems to be better, so therefore we're seeing these markers change in real time. Because this will also, it's like a paradigm shift here, because when we look at prognostication, most of the prognostication right now just defines who are the people with poor outcome and stop and withdraw and so they die. So what we're trying to do also is shift the mentality away from nihilism and finding people, giving clinicians the tools to say, if you're seeing this, keep going. So that's one biomarker. And then there's another biomarker that, so one biomarker is very sophisticated. We're looking about MRIs and all sophisticated EEGs and, you know, we're factored in artificial intelligence. And then there's a simpler one that looks at just simple markers that will try to define the same things also that is probably more for broad use rather than for specific centers. And then there's, so those are the two general identifying phenotypes and responses as a as, a, as an ancillary study. Anything to add, Robert? No, no, I think that, you know, the whole era of precision medicine has, you know, the promise that individual patients with individual problems are all different and might respond to different things, but the science to actually figure out who needs what isn't there yet. So we have to lump people together sure. uh, to a certain degree at, at this point. And, and maybe in the future, we'll know better how to titrate the right therapy to the right person. But, you know, whether you're studying cardiac arrest or pneumonia, we have these, these same problems, right? We, sure. we have to make sure they have the disease of interest, which we know in cardiac arrest they do. And then whether there's different drugs for different people, different therapies for different people, different durations of cooling for different people, um, that's, that's for the future to tell us. But uh, no, I, I, I agree. And I think uh, just going to the boost trial, you know, I think you could, I mean, the brain is way too complicated just to, to simplify it to just brain oxygen and ICP. I think we all know that. But the nice thing is we're collecting all this other data that right. that may be able to go back and say, well, what, you know, yep. what was the, um, you know, what are some of the other questions you want to ask there? Some will be getting EEG on and all that. And I think that's, um, uh, you know, that's, that's when we can answer those, those issues. So, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, Intrigued by Pat Lighton's talk on the, the selective vulnerability of, of uh, nerve cells and, um, you know, astrocytes versus neurons and how he was uh, suggesting a, a, a sort of this, this sort of interesting cooling profile and rewarming thing. I know that's in animals, but... Um, and it was just something that was, uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. I mean, what you're doing is just a pretty standard cooling, quick right. cooling, and then more of the bathtub kind right. of thing, and then right. rewarming, right, that curve. But, um, and, and so um, the, the, the interesting, so we have to distinguish what Dr. Leiden was talking about. Because Dr. Leiden was talking about the collection of types of neurons and cells together 
But what we're seeing, so that's the selective type cell, cell type injury that he was talking about. In cardiac arrest, there's a different kind of selective vulnerability. And selective vulnerability in cardiac arrest is dependent on the region, not the cell type. So in cardiac arrest, like the CA1 of the hippocampus, which is like the entry point for memory, that's the most susceptible. That's why most cardiac arrest survivors have very bad memory, right? They cannot form new memories. And the other part, the next part that's really sensitive is the cortex. So a lot of these people, and this is actually what we will be measuring to, is the cognitive function, the executive function of these patients will be impaired. So, so this is what, at the same time, this is very sensitive, but studies in animals have shown that these are also the sites that are most sensitive to temperature protection. So it's, it's good because in a sense, it's targeted. So it's slightly, so the concept that Dr. Leiden was talking about is slightly different from what we're dealing here. Well, uh, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So, so there is regional vulnerability. Right. Uh, the notion that, that Pat was talking that there might also be cell type vulnerability, it can, can also be true that yes. they're, they're, not, they're not different from each other. I, I think, you know, at this point, it's still highly speculative. I, I was fascinated by it because, you know, if in fact it turns out that six hours, the shortest duration is the best duration in our study, uh, not not our expectation, but if that was the case, you know, I would have had a fairly hand waving explanation before. Now with this, I can say, you know, maybe this is actually consistent with there. there there's a I can I can speculate more from animal data about why that might be the case if that mm. actually ends up happening. So I I was intrigued for that reason. It, it allows me to understand more of the things that could happen in the trial, yeah, at least theoretically. Cool, yeah. So what kind of neurocognitive assessment are you doing in the so, so in the uh, study, we have uh, the modified Rankin score is the yeah. functional outcome measure, but then we also have a, a selected battery from the NIH toolbox, which is a uh, uh, online iPad-driven uh, consistent uh, neuropsych measurement tests that uh, uh, were developed for use across NIH trials. And, uh, and that'll give us some cognitive measurements, executive functioning measurements, and then we'll have a few pen and paper measures just to round it out and make sure that we can talk about consistency with prior trials. Well, that's great. Well, I uh, appreciate both of you taking your time to uh, talk about ICECAP. We're all looking forward to the trial, and it's gonna, you're going to get your first patient in a couple of months, I think. Is that That's right? what I'm hoping. Yes. Good. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Dick. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Dick. So thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, please take a moment to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to Dick Moberg's Neural Network to receive notifications when future installments are available. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Moberg Research, Inc. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again soon.